Hello, welcome to my podcast. In this episode, I discuss the economic future of the West with Steve Davies. A historian, he's currently head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London and the author of books such as Empiricism and History and the Dictionary of Conservative and Libertarian Thought. You can find him on Twitter. Okay, Steve, so I'll start with a general question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the economic future of the West? In the medium to longer term, optimistic. In the short term, uh, rather pessimistic. Well, it depends on what you mean by medium term. I'm fairly pessimistic about the next decade and a half to two decades, but I think that in the longer run, things are good. Okay, so for the next one to two decades, you are pessimistic. Yeah, I think they're going to be really, really quite challenging, um, as people like to say. Uh, I I think that there's a whole series of... uh, political, geopolitical, and economic headwinds facing the West, and indeed the whole planet actually come to that uh, right now. And the next uh, 20 years are going to be, as I say, very, very challenging for our political class. And a lot of people of all political persuasions, I think, are going to have to uh, rethink quite a lot of their assumptions. Okay, interesting. So what are some of these headwinds that you just mentioned? Well, There are are a number. One of them is the way in which the uh, international trade system that was gradually built up uh, following the formation of GATT in uh, the end of World War II and then subsequently the World Trade Order, that international trade system, uh, which is founded upon free trade agreements, which are based around the principle of regulatory harmonization, is gradually breaking down. For a number of reasons, basically the logic of that system has been pushed as far as it will go. Uh, It's increasingly facing political pushback because the whole process involves taking large areas of public policy out of the democratic sphere and putting them into the hands of unelected public officials. And this is now increasingly attracting pushback. And thirdly, it rests upon and depends upon uh, the existence of a hegemonic power, the United States ultimately, which will enforce a lot of the uh, necessary underpinnings of such a trade system. And all of these are now you know, coming under threat. And so that's the first headwind. Mm-hmm. We are seeing a movement away from globalization. This had already begun before the pandemic, but what the pandemic did was to quite dramatically accelerate it. So we're seeing a reshoring of production, a shortening of supply chains, uh, a pullback from the level of economic integration that we saw uh, five or six years ago, certainly 10 years ago. And I think this process is going to continue. And that's a pretty serious headwind because a lot of the economic assumptions that many, many people, not just investors, but also people in the world of politics make are based on the assumption that will continue. Related to that is the second headwind, which is the gradual um, unravelling, this is a much earlier stage than the first one, of the international monetary system that we've had since about 1971-2, since the end of the Bretton Woods system, a system based upon uh, floating exchange rates and largely unconstrained movement of capital and money around the world. It's the reform to the international monetary system that was advocated by people like Milton Friedman, George Stigler, Mm -hmm. Harry Johnson, a number of other economists, mainly associated with the University of Chicago. And that monetary system, I think, again, uh, has now begun to show serious uh, flaws and weaknesses, not least the way in which 
uh, it's promoted a series of structural trade imbalances, which in turn have led to very large pools of capital accumulating in some parts of the world, Germany and East Asia, particularly China in particular, and then the reinvestment of those surplus pools of capital in the West. And so Western countries, uh, with the notable exception of Germany, have been running very, very large trade deficits, but capital account surpluses. They've been importing capital like mad, whereas the uh, surplus countries, of course, by definition, have been exporting capital. And this has proved to be increasingly destabilizing. In addition, there's the third element of the headwinds, before I go on to the fourth, which is the one I think we I, I'd like to focus on. Yeah. The third element is the, is the breakdown of the United States' hegemonic military position and the rise of rival powers, most obviously China, uh, but also other countries, Russia, uh, India and the like. And it's increasingly likely, given the way uh, the United States and the EU have responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and in particular their seizing of central bank assets, that quite a few of these countries, China, Russia, uh, the Gulf states, maybe India as well, will pull their assets together and set up a rival reserve currency because the the sort of message that the Americans sent out to the rest of the world was that uh, your dollar-denominated assets are not secure. They can be seized at any moment. And mm. that, I'm sure, has concentrated the minds of a lot of people, uh, and not just in Moscow, also in Beijing, Riyadh, and a number of other places. And so uh, the whole monetary system we've got is, uh, in again, in un starting to unravel, I think. Uh, and that, in turn, reflects changes in the geopolitical situation, the move towards a more multipolar world and the decline of the relatively dominant position of the United States. And the final headwind, and this is the one that I think perhaps you want to focus on, is a structural problem in the supply of energy in particular. There are a number of other raw materials where there's similar challenges, but it's oil in particular, and in a different way, natural gas, that are the big challenges. Basically, what we are looking at is a period in which there are there's a kind of tension or contradiction between the amount of oil that is needed for the world economy to run at full blast, given existing technology, and the price at which the oil has to be traded in order for that amount of oil to be produced. There's also a problem with gas, but that's a different one. There isn't so much of a supply constraint in the case of gas. It's rather that we don't yet have the infrastructure in place to distribute the global supply of gas efficiently. Right, well, that's given us a lot to discuss. So, does, yeah, let's focus on the fourth headwind that you mentioned there, which is the energy crisis. Yes. Um, would you say this is the principal cause for the inflation that we're currently seeing in the US and Europe, or are there other more important causes of that inflation? Oh, the, the, it's not causing inflation. Uh, a rise in costs, a price shock of the kind that we've seen with oil and gas in the last uh, you know, few months to a year, which, by the way, uh, has been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, but was not caused by it because the price of oil was rising quite sharply uh, even before Vladimir Putin started massing his troops around the border of Ukraine. So there's something else driving it. A price shock of that kind does not itself cause inflation. What it can cause is a lot of other unpleasant effects, like a slowdown in the economy, a decline in the standard of living, but it will not by itself cause inflation, because inflation, by definition, is a rise in the price level in general. And that only happens if you have an excessive expansion in the supply of money relative to the uh, output of the economy. And what we had during the pandemic 
which is the ultimate cause of inflation, was two things. On the one hand, a major supply side disruption through the disruption to supply chains that the pandemic caused, as well as all the lockdowns and things of that sort. But then on top of that, governments in many countries pumped up the money supply like mad in order to alleviate the effects of lockdown and all the other policies that they adopted. Now, I think that was probably justified. But what they didn't then do was reverse that quickly enough. So we have this enormous pool of money sitting in people's bank accounts because people were getting paid, for example, 80% of their income, but not having anything to spend it on during the pandemic. And all that money, uh, as the velocity of money goes back to its normal level, is now surging through the economy. Uh, And that is what is the primary driver of inflation. Now, the question ahead of us is, faced with this sharp rise in energy costs, how will government respond? And they have two choices, really. One of them is to basically accept that their populations are going to face a significant cut Uh, to their disposable income, because they'll have to spend a much higher proportion of their income on energy, which means they'll have less to spend on other things. Most people will experience this as a fall in their standard of living, given that they evaluate that by the amount and scope of their discretionary spending. And of course, for people low incomes, this is very, very serious. It means that they may well have to choose between heating the house and eating. Uh, It also means that companies will have their cost guard. Now, if governments do nothing other than try to mitigate the effects of this, then what we'll see is a severe recession due to the rise in energy costs, plus a fall in living standards. On the other hand, I suspect that what governments will do is actually alleviate this by turning on the money taps. Uh, They will indeed fund all sorts of programmes to try and alleviate these costs by printing money, just as they did during the pandemic. And that means that the inflation is likely to continue. So my own prognosis for inflation Uh, is that it's going to fall over this winter and spring quite sharply in the United States, in my view, where the Fed has tightened money quite significantly over the last few months, uh, a bit more slowly in the UK because of the incompetence of the Bank of England. But then it will settle down next year at about 5 or 6%, which is well above the targets that central banks have got. But that will not be directly due to the rise in energy prices, it will be due to the way I think and I expect governments will respond to that rise in energy prices. You can make a case for saying that they should have inflation, by the way. I mean, there is an arguable case that it's better to have a spell of inflation than to have a really severe fall in both profits and incomes, which disposable incomes, which is the alternative. Uh, So you would argue that uh, monetary policy and related policies during the pandemic are the primary cause of the current inflation? I think we can see this quite clearly, because Switzerland, for example, which in many ways is a comparable economy to the UK, it's a a medium-sized country, it's globally, it's a very open economy, very globally exposed, imports a lot lot of its requirements. Switzerland at the moment has an inflation rate of around 2%, despite the fact that it's subject to the same energy price shocks and other price shocks, commodity price shocks and so on as the UK. Uh, Similarly, the East Asian countries generally are not experiencing anything like the levels of inflation that we see in the Eurozone or in the UK or in the United States. And why is that? It's because their monetary policy was different. But is it not the case that certain EU countries, notably the ones that are, some of the ones that are most dependent on Russian energy have seen much higher inflation rates than ones that are less dependent on Russian energy. 
Um, they have seen the reason. Yes, they have seen that. The part of the reason for that is that the energy is fed through into rises in the uh, particular commodities that are part of the basket they use to evaluate or establish their inflation rate. But what that doesn't mean is that that energy rise by itself is causing the high inflation that they've got. Uh, if it were not for that, you'd have a much. If it was not for the monetary policies, the ECB has followed during the pandemic and subsequently, because it hasn't even begun to tighten monetary policy where the Fed and now the Bank of England have, then you would not have seen anything like the levels that you have. Uh, you would have had a spike in prices, but it would have been relatively, it would have not lasted as long. It would not have been a general spike in prices. It would have been a spike in the prices that are particularly due to, you know, products that have very high energy costs plus energy itself. Right. With regard specifically then to oil, which, whose price has, has increased quite a bit since the uh, pandemic restrictions started winding down. Um, my understanding is that you have to distinguish here between the price of crude oil and the price of refined products. Is that your understanding as well? Yes, it is. I mean, the, the, ultimately, obviously, the crude oil is the feedstock. So it, it ultimately determines what the prices of other things downstream are. But when you get from crude oil to things like petrol at the pump or uh, plastics or a whole bunch of other uh, products that are made out of crude oil, of which, by the way, fertilizers are perhaps most important because that obviously has a huge part to play in food costs, uh, then obviously you have to take into account the costs of the processes that are involved in producing those secondary products. So uh, a lot of these secondary products have gone up not only because there's been a rise in the price of the basic food stock, the uh, crude oil, but because also of severe capacity constraints and things like refining capacity or disruptions to supply chains of various kinds. So in many areas, there's been a double whammy, so to speak, as well as the basic cost going up because the price of oil has risen sharply. You've also had a rise in other costs, mainly because uh, of lack of investment in refining capacity. Uh, but that in turn is connected to the underlying problem that we face uh, with oil. Yes, I've read an interesting article by the Bloomberg columnist uh, Javier Blas, in which he pointed out that there's, a, there's been a growing disparity between the price of crude oil and the price of refined oil uh, as a result of precisely that issue, refining capacity. It yes. seems that over the last few years, in the West in particular, we've allowed refineries to shutter without upgrading them or building new ones. And there's not Absolutely. a lot we can do about this in the short term. Yes, precisely. This is a major problem. I mean, particularly in the United States, but elsewhere as well. Refineries are amazingly complicated bits of machinery. And it's not just that you need to build new capacity. You need to constantly spend large amounts of money to keep the, the things going mm. because being complicated, they tend to break down all the time. So you have to constantly renew all the infrastructure, the pipes, the catalytic converters and all the other stuff that goes together to make a large uh, oil treatment plant. And over the last decade, really, uh, just not enough has been spent, not on just new capacity, but on basic maintenance. And so a lot of refineries are just simply not capable of working at full capacity, or they've been, as you say, shuttered. Uh, with natural gas, by the way, the problem there is similar, but not quite the same. The gas at the moment, there's, there's, the Americans have more gas than they know what to do with, quite frankly. The, uh, the shale revolution has produced colossal amounts of gas in the United States. Uh, but the problem is that liquid 
liquefied natural gas is very expensive and difficult to transport. Uh, you can transport gas over land through pipelines in its gases form. Not too difficult. It's, it's still expensive to build the pipelines, but it's not too difficult. But transporting it long distances across oceans requires it to be liquefied in a specialised plant, then put onto a specialised ship, and then unloaded into a specialised terminal at the other end. And quite simply, the terminals for both at both neither end have been built. And so that's why, despite the fact the Americans have effectively a surplus of gas, they can't help out Germany and Europe at the moment because we just haven't built the terminals. And that takes three to five years. It also takes about three to five years at least to build the kind of refining capacity that we need or petrochemical treatment plants that we need. So there's a serious shortage of capital investment, basically, in this whole sector. Yeah, I'd uh, like to come back to gas in a few minutes, but just to stick with oil for a second. Why is it then that the West didn't see ahead and, uh, and didn't foresee that uh, if, if we didn't upgrade or, or build new refineries, there would be a problem of uh, disparity well, between the price of crude oil and the price of refined products? Well, the answer to that question, uh, they did foresee it, but they didn't do it. So why not? I mean, well, when I say they didn't foresee it, what I mean is the politicians didn't foresee it, but that's the usual blindness of politicians, I'm afraid. I think the people in the industry could clearly foresee it, but they, they didn't spend money. Why not? Well, um, the sort of straightforward answer that a lot of people trot out is that it's because they're responding to the political climate and to green policies followed by uh, governments in both Europe and North America and elsewhere that are discouraging investment in fossil fuels. Now, those policies haven't helped, but I do not think they're the major factor behind this lack of investment, because this lack of investment is not only found in companies like American ones or European ones that are subject to the wills of things like the US Congress or European legislatures. It's also been the case with Russian or Chinese or Brazilian oil companies, which, as far as I know, are not subject to the control of Joe Biden and the United States Congress. I mean, they're, they're powerful people, but they don't control what Chinese oil companies do. So I think, the, although that's an exacerbating factor, the major reason why we have not had significant capital investment is this. At the moment, if the world economy is to run at full capacity, and it was rebounding very, very rapidly from the COVID pandemic when the price started to go up, it requires a certain amount, about 120 million barrels of oil per day, because that's the amount of oil it, it needs to uh, use to actually run at full capacity. That is about the maximum productive capacity of the world at the moment, as we've seen in recent months when Joe Biden begged the Saudis and the UAE to up their oil production uh, recently. He was told, no, it was they were at full blast. Now, this does not mean that we're running out of oil. There is a ton of oil out there. About 70% of all the oil that has ever existed uh, is still out there. The problem is that the marginal cost of production, the cost of those additional last 10 million to 20 million barrels per day that you need to get up to the level that the world economy requires to full run at full capacity is a is about 115 to 120 dollars a barrel so in other words once the world economy gets up to full capacity and starts to demand consume oil at those levels the price that has to be covered in order to get the production that is needed for that is about $120 a barrel at the moment. Now, at that point, 
a whole lot of economic activities that use oil become uneconomic and people respond to the price signal, the $120 a barrel price of crude oil and then the even higher prices of refined oil by reducing their consumption. They drive the car less, they don't fly as much, uh, they stop using oil intensive um, production processes, the usual rational economic actor responses. And that means that the, the world economy starts to slow down quite sharply. And at this point, you start to get a buildup of oil inventory uh, because producers are still pumping out at maximum capacity. Uh, and then that in turn leads to a fall. We can already see that the price of oil is starting to fall and it's going to continue to fall. Uh, it may well pick up again slightly in the winter because of increased demand for heating oil in North America and elsewhere. But broadly speaking, it will decline until about the middle to the end of next year. Uh, and then it will stay low until the world economy rebounds. Now, the problem is that what we have seen since about 2007 is a succession of peaks and troughs in which the price of oil shoots up. It reaches a level that is needed to cover the amount of oil that people want to consume. But at that level, people can't afford it, so they start to consume less, so the price goes back down. So we're seeing a kind of roller coaster up and down in the oil price. Now, the problem is this. Why is oil, that marginal cost of production, so expensive? It's because the fields that were brought online in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s are increasingly depleted. Now, there's plenty of new oil out there that can replace it, but this new oil is increasingly in difficult or challenging environments. Uh, it's at the bottom of the ocean, or it's under the Arctic, north of the Arctic Circle, or it's very high in sulfur and requires a lot of special refinery treatment to get the sulfur out of it and make it usable, or it's in very tight rock which requires special drilling techniques, fracking, to get it out. Uh, fracking also being more expensive because the wells don't last as long. And so for all of those reasons, it needs a high price if it's going to be produced. Now, the problem, this brings me finally, this is why we haven't had the investment. Companies are not going to invest the huge amounts of money that are needed to bring those new fields in places like the Arctic Circle on stream unless they can have a guaranteed return over about a 20, 25-year period, maybe even a 30-year period. Similarly for refining capacity. The refining capacity has to be amortized over about a 20-year period. You need a decent return over that horizon. If you don't have price stability, if you find that the price is going to fluctuate too much over that period, uh, you're not going to do that. And so that's the problem, basically. Uh, what we actually need is for oil prices to remain elevated, because if that is the case, that will then spur the investment in new supply that we need. But it has to stay at a reasonably high price for quite a long time. But that's rather painful for energy consumers, which means, of course, all of us, basically, because uh, oil plays a huge central part in a whole enormous range of products, many of which we don't think about, not least food. Fascinating. I know you're a, a sort of liberal minded person, but would you say there's a case for the government to make the investments that you just described are needed to um, upgrade the world's oil infrastructure? That, that is a good, that's a very good question. You could argue that given the strategic importance of uh, the having a stable supply of energy, then governments should 
uh, either buy golden shares in oil production companies, then use that golden share to instruct them to invest in this and underwrite losses they make during the downswings in the oil price, uh, or that they should even start making funding the investment themselves directly. However, you have to realise that <clears throat> this is not costless, because basically uh, what this means is that the government will be taking resources uh, and devoting it to securing the energy supply that could have been used for something else. Now, what is that something else? Well, it could be other kinds of investment elsewhere in the economy, or it could be current consumption. Uh, if an economically rational policy, if you want to go down this route of government uh, intervention in this area, would be to um, basically reduce current consumption rather than reducing investment, because uh, you don't want to hit the investment in the economy as a whole too, uh, too much, because that's what drives future growth. But that, of course, will be politically very unpopular. Nobody likes to see their living standards decline. The big structural problem we have at the moment, because of this relatively inelastic supply of energy at the top of the demand curve, is that it's very hard to see how you could have any kind of sustained growth in developed economies. Developing economies are a different story because there's still a lot of catch-up growth that you can get in places like Africa, South Asia, parts of East Asia. But in developed economies, uh, particularly Europe uh, and Japan, it's hard to see how they can get any growth. Uh, and Japan, in a way, is a bit like the canary in the coal mine. It, it's for various reasons. Um, Japan is probably the future that we're looking at, a future of very, very slow or, or nominal growth for a couple of decades at least. So um, you just uh, segued nicely to the next issue I want to discuss, which um, is as follows. I recently wrote uh, an article um, arguing that the EU is in a sense stuck between a rock and a hard place when it comes to energy. Because on the one hand, it, it stated long-term goals are to transition to renewables for the most part. But on the other hand, in the short term, uh, in order to uh, process large quantities of fossil fuel products, particularly oil, from sources other than Russia, they need to, they're going to need to massively upgrade their refining capacity. Yep. And as a consequence, they're going to need to spend a lot of money. And that's money that can't be spent <coughs> on the renewables investments they say they want to make. So mm. what, what exactly are they going to do about this? Good question. I don't know. They are really in a rock and a hard place. And, and it's more broad than just the specific problems facing the EU. The specific problem for the EU is that in the short, very short term, in the next five to 10 years, they need to build a lot of liquid gas terminals to stop their dependence on Russian gas and switch to alternative supplies, which means Qatar and the United States, basically. <coughs> so they're looking at a lot of capital investment in that. Even in addition to that, they're also trying to build up um, renewable energy, build a lot of windmills and other sources like that, or even build more nuclear power stations, uh, then that's also a lot of capital investment. So the question is, where is that going to come from? And um, in a way, the whole economy is like a, a fixed sum. Uh, obviously, the, the whole amount grows, we hope, but <coughs> excuse me, you have to basically, if you, you either take that extra investment from other investment, or you take it away from current consumption, there's no other alternative for that. Now, the thing with this is that um, there's a deeper problem, though, which is that in order to build all these windmills, for the sake of argument, you need to make a lot of steel. <coughs> and that means you need to consume a lot of oil because steel making 
is one of the processes that you cannot uh, do using uh, renewable energy. The big problem with renewable energy is that it's diffuse and there are certain processes, particularly steel making and cement making, that require large amounts of intense focused energy. They require concentrated energy inputs, which you can get easily from fossil fuels, coal and oil, but you can't get from renewables because of their, their nature. So they're in a very hard place. It means that the transition to a more green economy is going to require consuming a lot more oil and gas in the short run in order to produce the, um, the various kinds of technologies that you need to do that. And in fact, um, there, are all, there are several major areas, notably what's called industrial heating, which is things like steel making and cement making, and also long distance transport, where there's no readily available alternative to fossil fuels. Uh, the technologies that of renewable energy just do not work for those uses. And so there's no, we are not going to stop using fossil fuels anytime in the foreseeable future uh, if we want to maintain a high energy economy. It's as simple as that. Yeah, so you're probably aware that uh, earlier in the year there was a letter written by 11 former Brussels policy chiefs, including one former commission president, to, and they wrote to the EU leaders saying that the bloc must not make long-term commitments to alternative fossil fuels, uh, alternatives to Russian fossil fuels, because this will only serve to maintain EU energy dependence on other countries, many of which do not respect EU values, presumably referring to countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Yes. So this, this illustrates the, the bind perfectly. Yeah. There are no good options. I mean, I'm very glad I'm not a policymaker in this context, actually. You just have to make some very tough-minded decisions. Uh, I think it's quite clear you can't depend on Russia because I think you have to view Russia as a hostile power now. If you're, uh, it, you know, much as the Germans would you know, wish that this weren't the case, I think that's where we are now, thanks to the folly of Western policy in in the last couple of decades. So you maybe have to you have to kiss and make deals with the devil. Uh, I don't see any alternative to uh, making a deal with Qatar, for example. The obvious real one is the United States, uh, but of course you know. Uh, the United States, gas from the United States has to travel that bit further, uh, so it's going to be that bit more expensive, but th that's the only real option you have. So I recently listened to a podcast uh, interview with the analyst Sergei Vakalenko, who I hadn't heard of before, but he seems to be an expert in the oil and gas markets. And he argued in, in this podcast that... Uh, gas is actually close to the sort of perfect weapon that Putin might have to uh, impose counter sanctions against Europe. And the reasons for this are that Germany and several other European econ economies are heavily dependent on Russian gas and they can't easily get alternative supplies in the short run, as you've pointed out. And secondly, gas is actually a comparatively small part of Russian fossil fuel energy uh, revenues. Uh, yeah. The revenues from oil are actually much more important. So this suggests that there's really not a lot the EU can do about uh, Russia's counter-sanctions that it appears to have imposed, namely the reduction in um, gas supplies to Europe. 
No, absolutely not. I mean, uh, they should have thought about this more, you know, a few years ago, basically, I think, and um, had stood up to the United States more uh, following the Bucharest summit, uh, you know, gone public with their objections to the Americans' policy. But that's all water under the bridge now. As it is, what it means is that, um, uh, to be vulgar about it, Putin has got them by the balls, basically. Um, and they uh, they just have to take the pain it's going to be very very hard this winter uh, if he you know he has the potential say it comes to late november or early december to just cut the gas supply off entirely in which case germany is going to see uh power rationing heat rationing a whole a really serious uh, rough winter is, but that's where we are putin has an incentive does he not to at least keep a small trickle of gas going to europe because he's earning so, so much per unit of gas because the yeah, price has gone up. It's, it's a fine calculation for him. I mean, he, he may judge that he doesn't need to actually turn the screws that much, that he can uh, still, you know, earn money, but just let the Germans and uh, the Italians and other countries who are dependent on him for gas realise that, you know, he's got them over the proverbial barrel, basically. Uh, so, and, and hope that they will then respond appropriately in terms of, you know, the view they take in the the councils of NATO, so to speak. Mm. Uh, of course, from the point of view of the you know European countries, they they need to think about their seriously about their long term strategic interests, and it may well be, and I, I would hope they would come to this view, that they'll decide that it's worth taking the pain in the short term this winter and probably the winter after that, uh, in order to have a more secure strategic position. Uh, but you know, it's it's not going to be easy for any democratic politician in Europe at the moment. Back in um, May, I think it was, uh, the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was interviewed uh, and the clip uh, was shared a lot on Twitter. And in the clip, she said that if we immediately cut off the oil, and then I quote, Putin would be able to take the oil that he does sell, does he, that he does not sell to the European Union, to the world market, where the prices will increase and sell it for more. So she actually understood that Putin could benefit from Western yes, yes. sanctions in the short term. Absolutely. I mean, oil is the ultimate fungible commodity. It's globally priced, globally traded. Uh, and you know, a barrel of oil is about the most universally standardized product you can find anywhere. So any oil he doesn't sell to Western Europe, he just sells to China uh, or a whole bunch of other countries that are interested in buying it. And it, what is very striking, if you look at the sanctions uh, that have been imposed on Russia, is that the countries that have imposed these sanctions are basically the US, Canada, uh, Western Europe, the EU, uh, Japan, few countries in East Asia, uh, Taiwan, Singapore, and so on, uh, and countries, little island countries in the Pacific and the Caribbean and elsewhere. The Indians haven't gone along, other Southeast Asian countries haven't done it, the Arabs haven't, they've just basically told the Americans to, you know, soak their heads. Uh, virtually no African country has joined the sanctions or uh, most Latin American, Central American countries have not. So essentially, it tells you who sees their interests as closely aligned with those of the US and the EU, and who regards this as a, a war, which while regrettable, is not really their direct concern. And that's the bulk of the planet, basically. Uh, so these sanctions are essentially <clears throat> self-harming as far as the West is concerned because they're not harming Putin, but the blowback in terms of raised costs is having quite a severe effect on Western economies, particularly European ones. The United mm. States, interestingly, is not so badly affected by this blowback because it's pretty much energy self-sufficient, 
uh, and it doesn't have the same kind of problems of uh, exposure to costs through uh, sanctions in terms of money and uh, money markets and things of that sort or other exports, whereas the German economy is quite severely hit because it was exporting a ton of stuff like finished industrial goods to Russia, all of which has now stopped. Uh, so the effect of these, the blowback effect of these sanctions is much less marked in the US than it is in Europe. Yes, yeah, so you you mentioned that the sanctions are self-harming um, and they're not and they're actually helping Russia in the short term. But I think you would say that some of the sanctions are harming Russia. It's just that the energy oh, sanctions yeah. aren't. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they will. I mean, what they will lead to is a fall in the living standards of the Russian population. And I think the calculation was that if you bring about a fall in the living standards of the, the mass of Russians, that this will translate into pressure upon the Russian policymaking elite, uh, as well as, of course, there were sanctions which deliberately targeted that elite. But I think what the West clearly miscalculated was, and I have to say, I mean, this is a mistake I, I made as well, so I'm not claiming any great insight here, was the degree to which the Russian elite, and not just Putin, regard this conflict in Ukraine as an existential one for the existence of the Russian state, which means that uh, a lot, I'm sure a lot of these oligarchs are really annoyed and uh, cheesed off that their yachts have been seized and they can no longer visit their properties in places like Paris and London. But <clears throat> basically, that's a hit they're prepared to take. And I think the same is true of the Russian population at large. Uh, they appear, the great majority of them, to think that, yes, this is not at all pleasant uh, and it's, it's a major cut in their uh, you know, living conditions, but it's a price worth paying because they tend to, from what we can tell anyway, share the view of the leadership that this is an existential struggle that they're engaged in, and that if they lose it, uh, the, Russian, the future of the Russian state itself is at stake. Uh, and this is the problem with fighting wars. Once wars start, the goals of the both parties to the war tend to escalate. This mm. is something you see repeatedly in history. Uh, and the longer the war goes on, uh, the less willing people are to climb down from those escalated goals and accept what now becomes seen as a humiliating compromise. And that's why wars uh, tend to last for a lot longer and become much larger uh, than the people who start them originally expect them to. And that's exactly what we can see here. Both the Russians and the West have now got much larger uh, escalated goals uh, than they did before Putin invaded. And that in turn has uh, meant that the bad effects, the costs that the sanctions are indeed imposing on Russia, are not having anything like the political or social impact that people originally thought they would. Yeah, the, I've, I've heard uh, one theory which seems plausible to me, consistent with what you're saying, which is that Western governments, when they initially imposed sanctions, which they must have been able to predict would have prompted counter sanctions of the kind we're seeing from Russia, um, they did so because they thought that either Ukraine would lose very quickly and then sanctions would become a bargaining chip with Russia, or that they assumed the rest of the world would join the West and Russia's economy would indeed be crippled. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I, I honestly don't know. I think... I'm not, I'm not so sure about the second part. I think they probably did realise, at least I think the policy makers realised that countries like India or uh, African countries were not likely to join these sanctions. They were probably unpleasantly surprised that the Saudis and the UAE uh, in particular did not join the sanctions. But again, uh, I, I imagine there always were some people who did. What I think they thought was that the uh, financial sanctions would have a much bigger effect mm. than 
proved to have. I think they thought that Russia was much more integrated into the financial financialized world economy than it actually has been. And it, it, what I think has emerged is the degree to which uh, Russia has actually deliberately chosen over the last 10 years to disengage from some of that global economy, and also the degree to which it's immune to a lot of financial sanctions because of its position as primarily a primary product producer. Uh, financial sanctions would hit a country like the US or the UK, or Japan for that matter, very hard because the financial services sector is a very large one, and also the rest of our economy is highly tied up with it. But that's not the case when uh, you're not, doesn't have to be the same, the case when you're dealing with an economy that is largely built around primary uh, products, which is what the Russian economy is basically. It's, it's oil, minerals, uh, diamonds, uh, timber, wheat, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and so I think that's what they thought. They miscalculated on just how powerful the um, financial uh, sanctions they put in place would prove to be. There's also, there's also, of course, the sort of long-term argument for not being dependent on, on a country which is a kind of ge- geopolitical rival um, for your energy. But do, yeah, you, do you think that if um, European governments had foreseen uh, what is now happening to gas prices and to a lesser extent oil prices, they would have imposed the sanctions they did? They did? Uh, yeah, I think they still would have done so because the alternative... The problem is quite simply this: uh, because Russia is a nuclear power, they do not want the NATO. They do not want NATO to become directly involved in fighting on the Ukrainian side, because that's a that's a way to spark off World War Three, which obviously no sane person wants to do. Uh, so, given that, and given also the military incapacity of European countries, most of them are spending a huge amount of money on defence, but getting bugger all for it in terms of any kind of effective military capacity. Given their military incapacity, this was the only thing they could do. So I think they still would have done it, but they would have been, uh, you know, had they realised just how vulnerable they were in terms of rising energy costs, uh, I I think they would have uh, been a lot more reluctant. But when push came to shove, I think they still would have done it. What they might have done uh, is asked for more over help from the United States in various ways, uh, but uh, which they may still do. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't uh, deputations going from uh, various European capitals to the United States in the next few months asking for various kinds of assistance to deal with the, the impact of these sanctions blowbacks. So you said earlier that... Uh... Europe is going to need to source natural gas via LNG from uh, alternative countries, not Russia, yeah. mainly the uh, US and Qatar. I read, yeah. a, I read an article by an analyst named Sarah Miller, and she said that this was written back in March. It's unlikely that alternative gas supplies in anything like the volumes Europe takes from Russia will ever materialize at affordable prices. Europe's choice is basically to keep buying Russian gas or make do with a lot less. Do you think that's going too far, or is she right? Uh, well, she she obviously knows more about this matter than, than I do, but it, I am quite surprised to, do, to hear that. I suspect that the calculation is that in order to get the quantities of LNG that you would need to completely replace Russian gas, you will have to spend a really significant amount of money uh, in building... Uh, a lot of expensive capital facilities, and that that would then translate into much higher costs. 
Uh, Qatar is the world's largest single gas producer, but it's selling that gas all over the world because of its geographical location being in the Gulf. Uh, the main sort of place you'd be looking to make up the difference would be North America. But obviously, you know, the American economy also is looking to switch away from things like oil to natural gas and other uh, alternatives to oil uh, as, think, as we move forward. So, yes, I think you are probably looking, you know, I think you can replace the, the oil. The question is, the gas rather from Russia, the question is, at what price? Mm. And I suspect that the capital cost and the transport costs, which are not inconsiderable, would mean that it would be significantly more expensive. Now, that means, that's, again, it goes back to the point we started off with, that translates into a straightforward choice. You either consume the same amount, but that means you have a lot less money to spend on a whole range of other things, which translates for most people into a sharp cut in living standards, or uh, you basically consume a lot less. Uh, and that means, well, managing to do with a lot less energy. And... Uh, you know, you then need to think about what is it all that natural gas is being used for. Now, uh, it's being used to generate electricity, but it's used for a whole lot of other things, domestic heating, for example. Uh, but also, and this is something people often overlook, it's the basic feedstock for a lot of fertilizers. Uh, and so there's a serious problem with natural gas uh, being expensive in the way it feeds through into elevated food costs because of the way it raises the price of fertilizer, which is one of the major costs in food production. So it, it's some very tricky decisions that people have to make. So in the, in the last 15 minutes then, uh, we, I'd like to talk about uh, nuclear and renewables, but just, bef just yeah. before that, <clears throat> how bad do you think the situation in Europe is going to be this winter, assuming the gas doesn't get switched back on? Well, it, it, I think it is going to be pretty bad, but there will be a lot of variation. So some countries are going to do much worse than others, basically. France is going to be, you know, have a bit of a hard time, we'll muddle through. Uh, things are going to be tight in Britain, but I think um, we will probably get through without power cuts. There's a worst case scenario that we get uh, a significant cut. The problem we have is that we import a lot of our gas from Norway and the Norwegians have had an exceptionally dry summer in the south of the country and an exceptionally wet summer in the north of the country. And the combination of those two uh, unusual weather patterns is that they basically, their hydroelectric uh, sector is not producing anything like the power that it normally would do this autumn and winter. So they're going to have to keep back a lot of gas. So we are going to have quite a tight squeeze, but I don't think the lights are going to go out. On the other hand, Germany and Italy, particularly Italy, are in a very vulnerable situation. So we're going to see some places do okay. Other places have a hard time, but just make it. And Germany and Italy, maybe Austria as well, uh, have a very hard time. Now, the thing that qualifies that is, of course, there's a lot of scope for basically using less energy. We, we do have an extremely energy intensive lifestyle. And there's all sorts of ways in which you can simply consume a lot less electricity. People may not like this. Uh, but yes, there, there's scope for that. And so one of the questions is, what is the degree to which people will cut back their energy consumption? And that, by the way, is a reason for not mitigating the full impact of the price rise, because the price rise is essentially the market doing its job. 
and telling us that we need to use less energy as consumers, both industrial and domestic. And if you try to blunt that price signal, you won't get the fall in energy uses that you need, uh, which suggests that what you need to do is not reduce the prices, not cap the prices. That's never a good idea, but rather to have directed assistance through things like welfare top-ups and supplements to the people on low incomes who otherwise are going to be, find it very hard to actually make basic ends meet. Some commentators go as far as to say that there could be uh, social unrest in Europe and we could see governments toppled. Uh, do you think that's I likely? Think it's possible in some countries, yes. I, th I think uh, that the German energy minister, who's from the Green Party, of course, made this, uh, you know, uh, comment which she didn't realise was being recorded, that she thought there could be riots and civil disorder in Germany this winter. Uh, and it, you know, she's obviously briefed. The country I would be uh, most nervous about is Italy, uh, which is even more dependent upon Russian gas than Germany is, and where the Italian state is chronically fragile. And of course, the government has recently collapsed. The prime minister uh, resigned recently, and there could well be early elections. So uh, Italy is the country where I think we could see some serious um, political trouble. But yes, it could happen. I mean, it depends how people react. So that's what we don't know, really. We do not know how the European populations are going to react to a sudden sharp fall in their standard of living, a period of uh, general inflation due to the monetary policy of the ECB, coupled with sharp rises in uh, essential costs for which there's very inelastic demand in some ways. Uh, you can cut your energy usage back significantly, as I've just said, but ultimately it's not something you can do without entirely. Uh, and so this is a, a less elastic demand than I think many people would like it to be. So we don't know how people are going to react to that. So we could have um, quite serious civil unrest. We'll have to wait and see. There's no other answer to that question. And given what you said about LNG supplies from Qatar in the US, i.e. that getting significant quantities is going to require investment and perhaps two to three years at least, does this mean the problems and the potential social unrest could last until 2025, 2026? That depends. Yes, they could. It depends on how long the war in Ukraine goes on, apart from anything else. Um, personally, I think the war is likely to last for quite a long time. So I think that we, it will be tough to get through this coming winter, but then I strongly suspect we will still have the same problems <clears throat> by in the, the winter after that, uh, the winter of next year. Now, what governments could be doing in the interim, of course, uh, is adopting policies to try and increase energy, domestic energy production by any means necessary to try and head that off. So in the British context, that means, for example, allowing gas fracking. Uh, that should be top of the priority at the moment, plus encouraging things like encouraging farmers to uh, put up solar power farms and things of that sort, trying to try overruling the NIMBYs who don't want uh, that kind of uh, power generation be taking place. Uh, essentially, if, if I was in the, the government at the moment, I'd be looking for almost any way of incre both increasing energy production and decreasing demand that I could think of between now and next winter, because uh, that's what we probably do need to plan for, for at least two years, maybe as many as three years, but certainly two years of increasingly straightened supplies. Of course, in the meantime, I mean, this is assuming that the war does go on for a long time. It could be that Ukraine wins a victory, or it could be that Ukraine collapses. But I, I would bet against either of those outcomes. I think a prolonged uh, stalemate is a much more likely outcome at the moment as things stand. 
So at the start of the podcast, you uh, expressed pessimism regarding the economic future of the West for the next one to two decades, but perhaps optimism after that. In the next uh, one to two decades, can nuclear power make a significant contribution? Well, uh, probably not. The problem is that uh, we should we should almost certainly be looking to um, build nuclear power stations because if we are going to move away from fossil fuels, renewables are have the big problem of intermittency and you can't rely upon them for your base load generation. Nuclear power is actually very good at providing base load generation because the whole nature of a nuclear power station is you have to run run the thing all the time. You can't turn it on and off. Uh, so it's actually very highly suited for that. The problem is they take a very long time to build. Uh, and so because they're very complicated pieces of machinery, because you're dealing with a very dangerous process. And so if we start building nuclear power stations now, they're probably only going to be coming on stream in about seven to eight years time, if we're lucky. I mean, the British record in building uh, nuclear power stations like the AGRs, for example, was pathetic. Some of them took almost 20 years to come on stream. So it, it's we should be doing this, but I don't see it bridging uh, the gap in the kind of immediate future is one of the reasons why I am optimistic in the uh, medium term is that the slightly longer term is that I think we will uh, resolve this energy problem through, amongst other things, the uh, the development of probably more modular nuclear reactors, smaller modular ones, uh, building some large ones, maybe using, you know, borrowing the, the expertise of the French, who are by far the best in this area, uh, but that we can't look for that to bail us out for the next decade and a half. So you mentioned the French there, who, uh, of course, have invested more in nuclear than any other country. I think France gets, in a typical yes. year, 70% of its electricity from nuclear, compared to only 15% in Britain. That's right, But yes. France is having a lot of problems with its nuclear fleet at the moment, and energy yeah. prices are actually higher in Germany right, than in Germany right now. This is true. And the Electricity Day de France has been, is now having a big row with Macron's government because of the, the way they've been basically forced to swallow a huge loss, which is why he nationalised um, the company. So uh, it is true. And the problem with nuclear power stations, one of the drawbacks to them is that they're very complicated pieces of machinery and they do require uh, very expensive continuous maintenance, just as petrol refineries which, or oil refineries, which we talked about earlier, do. And what's happened is the French have been hit by... Uh, the problem that they tended to build, they built a lot of their power stations at the same time. So they're tending to all require uh, refurbishment or um, re renewal at the same time. Uh, and that's why they're suddenly finding that they've got these problems at the moment. I don't know if you read a recent uh, blog post, a Substack article by the economist Noah Smith, in which he expressed scepticism about nuclear power and argued for investment uh, in solar instead. Oh, he did acknowledge that nuclear power has a role to play, but he, he argued that its uh, benefits have been exaggerated. I am sort of sympathetic to that because the, the, the thing is, I think nuclear is essential if you're, if, because you want a reliable source of your baseload electricity generation. But um, I don't think that nuclear power or any of the much touted forms of nuclear power, such as liquid salt reactors or thorium reactors, are the kind of magic pill that some people think they are. The problem is that uh, nuclear, nuclear reactors take a long time to build. They have very high capital costs for building them. 
they're then very cheap to run. They're cheaper to run than a lot of other forms of power. But then at the end of their working life, you have extremely high decommissioning costs. And the whole decommissioning process takes an amazingly long time. We're still in the process of decommissioning some of the Magnox reactors, which we built in the 50s, which would you know, stop producing electricity a couple of decades ago. And this is because, of course, you're dealing with you know, decommissioning, taking apart what are now highly radioactive uh, reactor cores. Uh, and that's not something you do you know, lightly. Uh, and so you have very high costs at both the start and the end of the nuclear power station's life. And when you put those into the mix and you um, average out the cost over the entire working life, it turns out that they're nowhere near as cheap as people sometimes think they are. It's actually quite an expensive way of uh, getting energy. Plus, there's the problem of the insurance costs. Uh, nuclear reactors are actually very safe. The chances that one of them will do a Chernobyl and blow up are actually quite low. But having said that, if it does happen, and we know from Chernobyl that it can happen, uh, then the consequences are potentially cataclysmic. And so when you do insurance calculations, the way you work out the value at risk is by multiplying the probability of the event times the damage that the event would cause were it to happen. And with uh, nuclear power plants, because the damage that would be caused is so large in monetary terms, uh, never mind other ways of thinking about it, even though the probability is low, you still end up with a very, very large value at risk number. And that means that insurance is really, really expensive, which is why uh, the United States Congress back in the 1950s capped the amount of damage that could be paid for a nuclear accident at $60,000, because otherwise no commercial company would have taken on those insurance costs. So I tend to agree that nuclear power is not the kind of panacea that many people think it will be. Um, I think it is essential. I don't think we can do without it. But I, I don't think that it's going to be uh, the kind of magic uh, bullet that will enable us to keep on living uh, and consuming energy at the level to which we've become accustomed. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. Uh... So what do you think the energy mix in Europe is going to look like in, say, 2035 or 2040? How much energy are we going to be getting from gas, oil, nuclear and renewables? We're still going to be getting a lot from uh, oil and gas. That, that's unavoidable because, the, as I said, there are, at the moment, new, electricity is about 25% of average energy consumption in most countries. Uh, there's another 25% that is domestic heating, and that could be, uh, at the moment, that's mainly gas, but that could be switched from gas to electricity, albeit at considerable cost uh, and with a lot of disruption, particularly in countries like the UK that have a much older housing stock. But that still leaves 50% of industrial heating and long-distance long transport, uh, which is very, very hard to electrify. And so we are still going to be using a lot of oil and gas fossil fuels, undoubtedly. I think we will have a much larger amount of our energy coming from renewables, but the critical thing is um, two, well, there's two critical factors. One is we may well be using a lot less energy. I think we may well be seeing a transition to uh, an economy and a society in which we simply use less energy than we do at the moment, um, and which Therefore, our lifestyles have changed in certain quite significant and important ways to uh, to bring that about. The other thing, which is why I'm perhaps more optimistic about 
the situation fairly the energy as time, is the hope that in the interim we've had a number of possible technological breakthroughs, in particular that we've had a breakthrough in energy storage technology. Because the real one of the real problems with renewable energy is that it's, you need a means of storing it and above all concentrating it, uh, because that would enable it to be applied to the uses for which uh, it's currently impractical to apply it. Now, the question is, will we have done that by then? Will we have developed a super battery, if you will, uh, something way beyond contemporary battery technology, uh, which would enable us to do that? If we have uh, within 20 years, then a lot more of our energy will come from renewable sources because we will be able to use that energy much more effectively. If not, then I think that we will still, we will either still be using very large amounts of fossil fuels and or, or probably a mixture of the two, we will be consuming a lot less. Is there an example of a developed economy that uses comparatively less energy uh, than most of the others or than the average and which yet is still considered to be an, an advanced uh, well, country? The, the, actually, I would flip your question round in a way. Um, the country that is the outlier is the United States, which is in the opposite direction, because Americans use energy at a rate which is way, way higher than that of Europeans or indeed Japanese or almost any other country. I think Australia is close to the United States, but otherwise, other than that, it's basically the US and to a slightly lesser extent, Canada, the throughout in a class of their own. So most developed countries are on broadly the same level, although some use more energy slightly less than others. Uh, but what is noticeable is that the United States consumes energy at a much, much higher rate. Now, what that tells you is that you don't need to consume energy uh, at the rate the Americans do to have uh, a high standard of living. You can still have a high standard of living and consuming it less. The challenge really is to find out if there is a way of reducing the energy consumption of a developed economy uh, in such a way that the standard of living does not take too much of a hit. Now, partly this is subjective judgment. If we use less energy, we will live in a slightly different way. And many people would find this as a, a cost and therefore they'd experience this as a form of their standards of living. Not everyone would do though. And also, of course, obviously the scope for efficiency savings. Now, it's worth saying that in the 1980s, following the oil price shocks of the 1970s, 73 and 79, uh, energy consumption declined quite significantly. And also it's worth saying that in pretty much every developed economy since about 2010 or even before then, the formerly almost perfect match between uh, rising incomes and rising living standards, consumption levels and rising energy consumption has, has stopped, has broken. So what you see is that up until about then, the graph of you know, economic growth and uh, energy use were almost perfectly in lockstep. But since then, they've diverged. So there is a continued rise in uh, living standards and in economic activity, but energy production, has, you know, energy usage grows much more slowly. Uh, and so what we want to see, what we will have to see really, is a widening of that gap. We'll have to find various ways through very often marginal or small technological innovations by themselves, which however cumulatively add up to a lot more. We have to find ways of reducing the amount of energy that is consumed in order to maintain a particular standard of living. But as I say, I think that probably will involve some, uh, some changes in the way we live. Uh, the question is how big will those have to be? And we don't know the answer to that yet. 
Okay, so I'd like to wrap up the discussion there, but just before we end, is there anything that you're working on at the moment that you'd like to mention? Well, I have a book coming out from the IEA uh, soon. I, I'm sort of doing a final edit for adding an additional chapter to it, uh, which is on the subject of global catastrophic risk, uh, which is the kind of uh, risks that would either destroy civilization irreparably or even end human life on the planet. Uh, there's rather more of these than you might imagine, uh, some of which are very low probability, others of which are actually you know, not as low probability as we would like them to be. Uh, and so I'm looking at the economics of global catastrophic risks, about what they are, why we need to think about them, why the way we think about them is often uh, mistaken, because we don't do the probability calculations right, essentially, uh, and also why what can be done to either head off or mitigate risks of this kind, and why not enough has yet been done in this area, although a lot is being done in some areas, but not enough in some others. Oh, interesting. So what's, what's the uh, catastrophic risk that we face that you regard as having the highest probability? Well, the one that people who know about it are most alarmed about uh, is unaligned artificial intelligence. This is the fear that there will be a super intelligent artificial intelligence, which might either be self-aware and then decide that human beings are a bloody nuisance and decide to exterminate us, or which, although not self-aware, uh, ran amok and behaved in ways that caused uh, enormous damage or risk to the continued human existence. Now, I don't know enough about AI to be able to really evaluate what the risk of that is, but the people who are actually involved in AI are increasingly seriously nervous about this to the extent that the uh, there's an increasingly popular idea in those circles that we should actually pause a lot of AI research until we have a high, better idea about what is going on. So that's one risk certain to think about. Another risk which is very topical is the risk of a serious pandemic, well, and not something like COVID, but something like on the same scale as the Black Death. Uh, or Justinian's plague or the Antonine plague, a, a pandemic that would wipe out about 35 to 50 percent of the planetary population. Uh, that is way more, it's not a high probability, but I think it's way more likely than is comfortable. It's about 0.3 percent in any one year, which is a significant risk, really, if you think about the consequences were it to happen. Uh, and what what is going on there at the moment is that various things are being done uh, which make the risks of such an event significantly higher than they should be. So at least there's something to do it. Another risk that's worth thinking about is what's called a Carrington event, which is a, a very large scale solar storm. Um, this is a, again, low probability event and historically, it wouldn't have been anything for human beings to worry about. I mean, we've had extremely large solar coronal mass ejections in the historical past, but all this studies make very pretty lights in the sky for people in uh, polar latitudes. Uh, but if one were to happen now, on the kind of scale that we've seen several times in recorded history, then it would destroy electrical power grids all over the planet, and that would be a, a big problem. So... Again, that's another risk that's worth thinking about. Fortunately, there are very straightforward ways of protecting against that, which are not even that expensive. Those are some of the ones that are worth thinking about. The other one is uh, that of an abrupt climate reset, uh, which is not exactly the same thing as cli anthropogenic climate change. It's the idea that the planet's thermostat, if you will, would suddenly and quite abruptly switch from one setting to another. Uh, 
probably in, in the current context, from a cooler setting to a warmer setting. And this has happened many times in the past, both in the geological past and even the human historical past. That would be a catastrophe, not so much because of the extremity of the change, as because of its suddenness, because we're, we're talking about about two decades here, uh, and we wouldn't have time to adapt, whereas even quite a large rise in the planetary temperature that was spread out over a 70, 80, 90 year period, while it would not be good, uh, would still give us time to adapt and adjust. Uh, that would not be a good thing, and we should try to avoid it, but it wouldn't be catastrophic, whereas a sudden and abrupt switch in the climate uh, would be catastrophic. So that's that's probably the one that is the highest probability at the moment uh, and the one that we, we should be most concerned about. Okay, well, on that cheery note, uh, I'll say thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye.